0: Hello there, listeners, and welcome back. Welcome to another Headlines episode. For those of you who are new here, Headlines episodes cover breaking news with regard to climate change, environmental issues, conscious consumerism, and we do it all under 15 minutes. So there's three news blurbs, an ad break, and then we go a little bit deeper into the feature story. Today's feature story is about the Colorado River. You may have heard bits and pieces about the river and river news this week. In today's feature story spot, I'm going to break it all down for you. So first up today, we're discussing the second session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee. And oh my goodness, you're thinking to yourself, what on earth is that? In layman's terms, next week, delegates from UN member states will gather in Paris to debate the shape of what some of us hope will become the plastic pollution equivalent to the Paris Climate Agreement. So let's talk about plastics for a hot minute. Since the introduction of plastics in the first half of the 1900s, demand has grown exponentially. Each year, it is estimated that about 400 million tons of plastic is produced, which, if you need a visual to understand what 400 million tons looks like, it's equal to the weight of more than 1,000 empire state buildings each year. Now, the UN Environment Program has put forward a proposal to keep plastics in circulation for as long as possible through recycling, through reuse. But some activists and scientists believe that we need to cap production of plastics. We need to reduce, if not completely eliminate, the creation of plastic so that we can seek to solve some of the big plastic problems, namely plastic pollution. Plastic is one of the biggest threats that our oceans are currently facing. Plastic causes unbelievable harm to our marine ecosystems and economic damage to our coastal communities and potential health threats to the three-ish billion people who rely on seafood for sustenance. And so the question that is likely going to be posed next week in Paris is What are we supposed to do with this plastic problem? Should we enforce rules to reduce plastic creation? Should we keep plastic in circulation? Because hello, recycling. Stay tuned for the major talking points that come out of next week's meetings. Next up, we're talking about sleep. Do you ever find yourself struggling to get quality sleep when it's hot? When there's a heat wave, do you wake up grumpy? Do your eyes have that just fatigued feeling? I don't know how to describe it, but those days when you just can't open your eyes all the way, your eyes are tired. Humans are already losing important sleep in warm environments, especially at the beginning of the night. A new study found that solid sleep will likely further decrease as temperatures rise globally. This new study looked at 47,000 adults in 68 countries and found that if the temperature is over 50 degrees outside, there's a notable change in sleep duration. And you're probably thinking, well, 50 degrees, that's 10 degrees Celsius. That's not that hot. On nights above 86 degrees, people sleep 14 minutes less on average. Now, 14 minutes a night doesn't sound all that bad, but that equates to 44-ish hours of sleep a year. And because nights have warmed faster than daytime temperatures in many places around the globe, by the year 2100, individuals worldwide could lose between 50 and 58 hours of sleep a year. That's a lot of sleep to lose because of warming temperatures. The reason is that we human beings are not yet adapted to the changing climates in which we live. Hotter temperatures do harm our sleep, and the harm becomes more significant the hotter the temperature gets. Now, of course, just so we're all on the same page, some problems associated with not getting enough sleep include serious health issues like poor mental health, obesity, heart problems, and Something interesting I learned when I was researching this story is that our blood pressure dips to its lowest point in a 24-hour period during the night. So if you don't get that natural dip because you're not sleeping well at night, we are more likely to have an elevated blood pressure, which can lead to hypertension, heart attack, or stroke. Moving right along, we're talking about the potential relocation of species who are endangered and maybe going extinct. Let's talk about the carner blue butterfly for a moment. Nine years ago, only two remaining carner blue butterflies were known to be alive. They live around southern Lake Michigan. The warming temperatures caused the caterpillars to hatch from their eggs early before the plant that they eat had emerged from the soil. And so basically the vast majority of carner blue butterflies starved and died, but two survived. And the question became, do we move these butterflies to a place where the lupine plant, the plant they eat, it blooms earlier? Should we move these two butterflies in hopes that this species does not become extinct? Well, Currently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service prohibits the relocation of endangered species outside of where they've traditionally lived. But that may soon change because the agency is expected to issue a final rule soon that may empower wildlife officials to relocate species that are indeed critically endangered. Now. What do you think of this? Some wildlife managers and many environmental organizations believe that it makes sense to relocate species that might be killed by warming temperatures or the consequences associated with warming temperatures, I should say, such as plants that aren't yet in bloom or sea level rise or droughts or wildfires. Should we be moving species big and small? Should we be moving butterflies? Should we be moving wolves? But others fear that moving species could lead to disaster. Perhaps the species we just moved becomes invasive and kills off other species, right? Neither option, whether to keep animals where they've traditionally lived or move them, neither of those options are a great choice, are they? Because either A, you have to allow for species to go extinct because they're no longer compatible with their environment, or Or you move them to a new area where they may, again, turn into an invasive species or cause all sorts of problems for the plants and animals that do live in their potential new place. So stay on the lookout for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's ruling on whether we're moving species in the future or not. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are moving on to the Colorado River. That's this week's big news. I'll see you in a minute. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high-quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game-changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. We're back. We're on to our feature story today, which has to do with the Colorado River. This story did indeed make national headlines. So maybe you've heard bits and pieces. My goal today with digging a little bit deeper is to answer any lingering questions so that we all are well-versed on the struggles the river faces, as well as potential proposed agreements and solutions. This week, earlier this week, states did reach a deal with the Biden administration to protect the Colorado River. So let's talk about the Colorado River for a moment. The Colorado River runs through seven states. It supplies more than 40 million people with water. It's a major source of drinking water for some of the United States' largest cities, including Los Angeles and Phoenix. The river also irrigates farmland so that You and I, our go-to supermarkets, have vegetables in the winter. The Colorado River also provides hydropower, so electricity to millions of people in the American West. And I think we can all agree right here and now that the Colorado River is pretty darn important. We do not want it to dry out, do we? Well, sadly, the river has been slowly drying out for decades. Water levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead in particular, those are reservoirs on the river, have hit historic lows in the past year. Now, you're probably wondering to yourself, why the Colorado River is huge? How on earth could it dry up? It's a combination, again, of chronic water overuse and a historic drought. The drought, of course, being accelerated, let's say, by climate change. Even though snow was abundant in California and snow that melts becomes water. Even though the snow has helped to replenish the reservoirs, it is not nearly enough to solve the Colorado River water crisis or reverse the 23-year drought. By early last year, the Biden administration became concerned that these two reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, their water levels would soon drop so low that hydroelectric dams would have to be shut down. There are also fears of dead pools. Dead pools, by the way, occur when water in reservoirs drop so low that the water can no longer flow downstream from the dam. So the question is not, should states that comprise the lower basin conserve water that's not the question the question is how do the states that comprise the lower basin conserve water best so that certain states certain areas aren't hit harder than others enter weeks and weeks of negotiation three states that comprise this lower basin california arizona and nevada have finally agreed again after weeks to voluntarily conserve Three million acre acre-feet of water over the next three years. Now, this deal is a temporary solution that is intended to protect, again, Lake Powell and Lake Mead from dropping to those critical levels. The Biden administration has stepped in and will compensate the states for three-quarters of water savings, so about $1.2 billion in federal funds are going to these states for their voluntary conservation of water. The money will go to pay farmers, to pay Native American tribes, to pay cities, and other entities and people who voluntarily conserve water. Now, it all sounds great. Everybody's going to save water. Wonderful. It is important for me to note here that this is not an agreement. It's not a binding agreement. It's not even an agreement. It's an agreement to submit a proposal to the federal government who will then analyze the term. So we're not out of the woods yet, right? This is agreement number one in a series of agreements. Also, a personal thought here is that we are voluntarily asking people and states and other entities to do the right thing and conserve water. However, I am becoming quite cynical in my old age. And when entities say they're going to do something or volunteer to do something or pledge to do something, I am, again, always cynical and critical to see whether these entities actually do what they volunteered to do, what they've pledged to do. So keep your ear out in coming weeks and months for more news on the Colorado River and conservation efforts. I will see you next Tuesday for your regularly scheduled interview. See you then. Have a great weekend. Have a great Memorial Day weekend and take care.